Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Number one, every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people I've mentioned, verses from the Quran, Hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Now, most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But once we get into the longer form episodes, which I plan on uploading soon, these notes are going to be a very uh, useful resource and an aid. So be sure to check that out. Number two, I would really, really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday, I send out a short email that shares what I'm working on or reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to coexistresearch.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. Inshallah, today we're going to wrap up this uh, discussion about prophetic models of coexistence. And <clears throat> this is the fourth and the final uh, model uh, that we have. And we are going to be talking about the life of the Prophet ﷺ in Medina in the last half of his uh, phase as Medina. So last time we talked a lot about establishing uh, the state of Medina and the Prophet ﷺ trying to make peace with the different tribes and the different religious communities uh, def- uh, coming up with the definition of citizenship and these type of things. So now we're, we're moving beyond that and now the assumption is that the Prophet, peace be upon him, has already established himself in Medina and there is a uh, sort of a power center for the Muslims in Medina. And at the same time, we know, even though this is not necessary discussion of Sira, we do know that at this time there were many attacks against the Prophet ﷺ and against Medina and against the homeland of Medina. And uh, there was the Quraysh in the south, and the Quraysh in the south had colluded with some of the tribes inside Medina. Uh, some of them were Jewish tribes in Medina, particularly Khaybar, and they were in the north. So there was this sort of two theaters of threat against uh, the nation at the time. Um, and we want to talk, we want to share a little bit about how did the Prophet, peace be upon him, deal with all of that. So even though this is the last several years of his life, uh, we know that, for example, he lived in, in uh, Medina for 10 years uh, before he, he uh, passed uh, at the age of 63. So these are like the last, you know, maybe five, six years of his life in Medina. Even though one assumes that that's sort of the end and sort of everything is done and wrapped up, it, that doesn't really take place until the very, very end of his life. So throughout these years, there's a lot of tension. And there's also subversive groups inside Al-Medina. And we talked about the hypocrites and we'll talk about them again today. So these are people that are inside Medina that are also trying to subvert the national security. So I'm trying to give everyone, I want us to understand that these were very tense times. These were not, it's not like all easy going and peace and, and tranquility, but there was a lot of tension and there was a lot of threats from all over. Um, you know, going to Medina almost seems like that was the easy part. The, the, the most the difficult part was, and even making peace and establishing a state, that was the easy part. Now it's sort of surviving and fledging. And really, in our history, it's not until the Battle of Badr uh, that we celebrate in Ramadan. It took place on the 17th of Ramadan. It wasn't really until the Battle of Badr followed by the Battle of Uhud 
that the Muslims were really of Medina secure. And it was sort of now they are a real entity and a real political and real military force. So how did the Prophet, peace be upon him, deal from the point of view of coexistence with all of this? It sounds like a bad situation. It sounds like there's a lot of tension, there are enemies. How did he deal with that? How did he deal with other people? Even people that he knew were his enemies. That's sort of the goal of today. And inshallah, I hope it will be a little bit shorter um, and uh, th because there are many little micro stories um, and there's like, too many to go into. So I just want to sort of uh, you know, glean some examples from these different groups. So the first group I want to speak about are the Jews of Medina. And as I said last time, the Jews of Medina were the largest um, uh, minority group after the Prophet ﷺ came to establish uh, himself in Medina with his companions. And we read in sort of these final years of the Prophet's life that the plurality of the Medina state really existed until the very end. So for example, Aisha, uh, عنها, the wife of the Prophet ﷺ, he said that when he died, he had his, uh, his, one of his shields was given as a ransom for payment uh, with a Jewish merchant. So this is when the Prophet ﷺ died that one of his pieces of property was used as ransom with a Jewish merchant. And we find these type of stories to indicate that the Jews of Medina lived amongst the Muslims until the very end and obviously and beyond. So the idea or the notion, sometimes people have this notion that because of the situation of Khaybar, which we'll get into, that uh, somehow Muslims and Jews you know, can't get along and they're like our sworn enemies and, and we had to eradicate them and things like that. But that's not, that's not true. That has to do with political alliances, which we'll talk about. But there were other Jewish tribes, not just the, the Jews of Khaybar. And the Jews in Medina, for example, we find that a Muslim and a, a Jew fight in the, in the marketplace, and they both go to the Prophet وسلم, uh, for advice and to uh, uh, reconcile. So this tells us that the Jews, like the Muslims, of course, trusted the Prophet ﷺ as a source of reconciliation, as a source of mediation, as a source of justice. So they recognized them, both groups, obviously the Muslims recognized them, but also the Jews of Medina recognized them as somebody that was honest and somebody that could pass a fair judgment. We find stories that the Prophet ﷺ, for example, would visit the house of a Jew, a Jewish boy who was dying. And, and, and he went to comfort him at his time of need and, and his father, the, the, the Jewish boy's father, was present. So, uh, and the funny thing is in that story, the Prophet ﷺ tells the Jewish boy, you know, he says, you know, say the shahada. And then the Jewish boy turns to his father and then his father says, obey Abu al-Qasim, obey Muhammad ﷺ. So the boy says the shahada and then he dies. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, I saved him. But the Prophet never orders the father or never uh, coerces the father to say the shahada. So we have to, when we read these stories, we have to read them several times to understand what's happening. Sometimes people read this story and say, look, he went and he went to this boy uh, who was dying and he made him uh, convert and say the shahada. But th that's a boy and he was on his deathbed. Uh, you know, sort of almost out of it. If anyone would need to be coerced to convert, if that was the perspective that the Prophet ﷺ had, it would be the father, not the boy who is maybe innocent, not, 
you know, not, uh, not of age and things like that. But th that's a very interesting story that the father, the Jewish father tells his son, obey Muhammad, وسلم, and then the boy obeys him, but the Prophet وسلم, leaves the father alone. You know, and the, and the father's like almost happy that, you know, that the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, is there in their house and visiting and things like that. So there's visitation, there's uh, um, the Jews of Medina live amongst the Muslims at this time, and uh, they exchange property, they, they trade with one another, they exchange gifts. Uh, verses 105 and 108 of Surah An-Nisa, for example, were revealed because a Muslim uh, stole a piece of property from somebody else and hid it in a Jewish man's house so people would think that the Jews stole it, not the Muslim. And then this was discovered, and these verses were revealed to exonerate this person, this Jewish person. So, for, so, this is, so this is one of a backstory of these verses, 105 to 108 of Surah An-Nisa. So other than the fact that that's not the best story that that happened, but the fact that this was exonerated through revelation, and it also tells us that Jews lived, lived as part of the community in Medina. They were not sort of outside. Some of them were like the, the, the tribes of Khaybar and, and the like. But there were other Jewish tribes, other groups within the Medina society that lived, you know, sort of next door neighbors to the Muslims. Um, we know, for example, another story from this time period, again, one of the stories that, that outwardly make us kind of pause, but when we sort of read, read it, we understand that there's more to it, that there was a Jewish lady who made, uh, you know, a tray of meat for the Prophet, وسلم, but she poisoned it, and he ate from it. And the Prophet وسلم, uh, wasn't poisoned, but somebody who ate from it was poisoned and eventually died. Now, this story, it, it, before we get into the death thing, the story tells us that there was this, uh, this concept of free gift giving between the Muslims and the Jews. There was no pause that the Prophet, وسلم, for example, said, oh, this is peculiar. Where did this come from? He just accepted it as a gift, meaning that the inclination was this is just like a neighbor, a neighborly person. Somebody made us a gift, a dish to eat, and we accept it. Like in Ramadan, we pass food around and no one thinks about it. And maybe your non-Muslim colleagues or your neighbors, they know that you're fasting and you know, they, they cook something for you. You don't think twice about it. It's normal. So that was also normal. And, but in this story, one of the companions died. And Subsequently, this lady, this Jewish lady who poisoned the meat, was also executed. Why is, did this happen? The Prophet ﷺ didn't uh, mete out that punishment because she tried to kill him. She met, he meted out the punishment because she killed somebody else. But up until that point in time, he took no action whatsoever against that lady. So... Sometimes these stories, and there are too many to talk about. Maybe that's a whole other class of discussion of the things that people quote and the stories and the hadith that make us sort of, what does that really mean? But this is one of those stories that people throw at us and say, look, look, at, look at how bad uh, the Prophet Muhammad was, وسلم, look at what he did. And it's very important to understand that in this case, she essentially killed somebody. And when something is done publicly, when there's rule of law, and a crime is committed publicly, then that crime has to be dealt with, uh, some punishment has to be exact. You can't hide it. It's not like our moral sins. When we commit a moral sin, 
and no one knows about it, then inshallah Allah forgives us. We don't, ask, we don't have to confess our sins, as it were. But when I wrong somebody else to the point of I kill somebody, you know, God forbid, then I'm going to be held accountable uh, for the law. So her crime, her punishment has to do with her crime of causing somebody else to die, not of causing the Prophet ﷺ or trying to poison him or trying to kill him. And this is very significant that he would never take that kind of revenge or that exact that kind of punishment for himself. And this was one of his, his qualities. Another group that lived in Medina, smaller than the Jewish community, were uh, the hypocrites and the apostates. And the hypocrites, as I've said before, were uh, people that outwardly claimed they were Muslim, but inwardly they disbelieved. And they tried to subvert the community. So they tried to sow discord and tension, they colluded with the enemy, they were like a fifth column in society. And the Prophet through revelation, he knew who those hypocrites were by name. And he never publicly outed them. He never publicly stated these, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so are the hypocrites. But rather, before he passed, he told one of his companions, Hudayfa, he gave this secret to Hudayfa, and he taught Hudayfa the names of all the hypocrites. Why did he do this? So that when one of them passed, that the Muslims wouldn't stand and pray over that person. So when Hudayfa, after the Prophet ﷺ passed away, when a, a hypocrite died, all of the Muslims, for all they know, this person's a Muslim because they have claimed that they were a Muslim. How did they know that this was a hypocrite? Hudayfa wouldn't go to the funeral prayer. And that's it. So the Prophet ﷺ never told Hudayfa, for example, you know, this is the list. You know, you got to whack these people and take them out. He never did that. Nor did he do that during his own life. But he coexisted with those people. He lived with the people even though he knew that those people were his enemies. I mean, these people were really his enemies. They weren't just another faith or just didn't want to convert or something like, or were not convinced. These people actually sought harm against the Prophet ﷺ himself, against his family, against the, the community, against the entire state. And this leads to a very important principle that we'll come back to also at the, at the end, which is that we judge one another by the outward manifestation. So when somebody says, I'm a Muslim, then khalas, they're a Muslim. Uh, if somebody says, I believe, then they believe, then that's that. It's not our job to uh, spy and uh, hold a court to prove that person has a certain level of faith. We judge sort of with the outward, uh, you know, what's outwardly present. And this is one of the principles of, of Islam that some that sometimes is foreign to people, that sometimes people don't understand that, that somehow we assume that there has to be this you know, test of faith and, and there has to be a formal sort of uh, inquisition to prove that somebody is a, is a believer or something like that. If somebody claims they're a believer, then that's that. And what Allah Ta'ala decides to do with that person, that's for Allah to decide, not for us to decide. And that's, very, that's an important lesson for us as we interact with one another. Uh, and because of this, the twin sort of theme with this is we also don't know the true state of anybody. So whether that person be a Muslim, not a Muslim, looks like they're pious, looks like they're wretched, we actually don't know what's on the inside. That's not for us. Allah has not asked us to, has, not only has not asked us not to, but has not given us the skills to know what's on the inside. 
of anybody. So when we encounter people, we deal with people at, at face value and we withhold judgment because that person might be the greatest saintliest person who have, to ever walk the faith, uh, face of this earth. Uh, even though outwardly they might be, they might, you might think, we might think they're the opposite. And just as sort of a little tangent, um, one of the stories that I always find really, uh, you know, uh, amazing is the story of Malik ibn Dinar, who was one of the great saints of Islam of the early generation. And Malik ibn Dinar, you know, like when you mention his name or like his name comes in a book, you're like, oh, this is a, a story of say he's going to like do something really amazing. He's a saint. But Malik ibn Dinar was a drunkard. And he was, you know, he was so, he was a, a really a failed alcoholic that he was so addicted to alcohol that it ruined his life, that he lost his family, he lost his child, that he wouldn't pray, that he wouldn't fast. I mean, he had hit rock bottom. He had lost everything due to this disease that he had. And in the depth of all of that, Allah Ta'ala called him back to him in, in a way that only Allah can, and he became the Malika bin Dinar that we know of. Now, so think of somebody that's like an AA, who, who you know, I don't know, God forbid, like because they were so drunk and so addicted to alcohol, you know, they forgot to like feed their child, their infant child, their child died like in the cradle. There's something really grotesque like that. That was Malik ibn Dinar. If you saw somebody like that today, if you, if you went to an AA meeting or if you went to somebody who had, you know, com committed involuntary manslaughter because they were drunk driving and they were serving time, and if you saw that person, none of us would ever think that this was a good person. Inside, we would automatically say, oh, this person's a man, sucks to be you kind of thing. But that person was Malik ibn Dinar, who's not only a, was a good person, was an example for all of us, an example for the entire community. So this idea of judging is very important, that we can't judge. And this is a real thing, and the Prophet ﷺ really lived this. So even though he knew who the hypocrites were, because they outwardly claimed that they were Muslim, he let them be the way that they were. And when the companions asked him about that, why don't you exact something, you know, why don't you take care of that? He said, I don't want people in the future to say that Muhammad killed his friends, that Muhammad killed his companions, because they outwardly said they were his companions. So he knew what the future could bring. He knew this is a PR decision. He knew that somebody would spin that against the Muslim community, that they would say that the Prophet ﷺ killed his companions, that even if you claim you're a companion of the Prophet ﷺ, you're not safe. He knew that that could happen, and he let that be. So, and this is, uh, from this, and I, I know I've said this many times when we've talked about this, but this really gets me, this, this story, or this issue of the hypocrites, because this means that he lived peacefully with people that he knew were his sworn enemy that he took no action against that. This is a, a tall thing, a, a, bit, a tall order, very, very difficult for us to do. And we know, alhamdulillah, we don't have these kind of tensions. You know, we don't have anyone trying to kill us. But we have people that we don't like. And we know that we have people that in our world that don't like us. You know? And this is a micro, microcosm of this bigger you know, thing of how to coexist and how to live peacefully with somebody like that. And then there were the apostates. So apostasy, uh, or in Arabic, ridda, are people that became Muslim and then left Islam. 
And there is this notion that people have or this uh, common misconception uh, that apostasy, you know, if, if, you, if you become Muslim and you leave Muslim, then all the Muslims get to kill you. you know, some, that's, that's essentially what people believe. And there are Muslims that believe that. And uh, one of the ulama of the fifth uh, century of the Hijrah, Ibn At-Tallah, uh, who I believe was a Spaniard, he said, if you look at all of the books of Sirah, you will never find one example in which the Prophet ﷺ killed anyone who left Islam. Uh, and this is very, very important that anybody, like for example, the story we said earlier of the Jewish lady who poisoned, anybody who met a capital punishment, met a capital punishment because they had blood on their hands, not because they left Islam. And uh, you know, one example, just to, so people don't think that I'm making it up. So one man, um, who is sort of of the hypocrite slash apostasy, uh, you know, persuasion, he comes to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and he he essentially insults the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and. He, he insults the Prophet, peace be upon him, in a way that, you know, indicates that this person is not a believer. You know, like you are not uh, a believer or, you know, you're, you know, basically lying about, you get re- revelation. And then he leaves, okay? In the parlance of, you know, Islamic law, those, are, those words that that man said were words of kufr, words that would lead, lead one outside of the folds of Islam. So the companions, they got very... You know, excited and anxious, you know, let, let, let us go kill him. And the Prophet leave him, maybe he prays. Leave him, maybe he prays. Meaning that even though he said that, and even though he was clearly, you know, somebody that, that had problems with his faith or had problems with the Prophet, the Prophet said, maybe, even despite that, maybe he's somebody that actually prayed, so let him be. And even though that's the case, the Prophet said, from this person, will come people uh, that will read the Qur'an, but the Qur'an will not penetrate their hearts. They will read the Qur'an, but the Qur'an will not go beneath their throats. They will pass through this world the way an arrow passes through the bow. And there are many hadith, these are the hadith that talk about the khawarij, people that um, claim to be Muslim, but have gone against the consensus of the Muslims, like the people that we keep talking about, like ISIS and uh, you know these uh, lunatics that run around and kill people in the name of Islam. These are the khawarij of, of our age. And the Prophet ﷺ said, somebody will come from this person who is so rude to him, and 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 uh, uh, but outwardly he looks like he's Mr. Pious, because the Prophet ﷺ said, you will compare your prayer to their prayer, and you will feel like you have never prayed. And you will compare your fasting to their fasting and you will feel like you've never fasted. And they have long beards and they have long hairs and they read the Qur'an all the time, but the Qur'an does not go beneath their throats to penetrate their hearts. Meaning that they read it, but it has no effect on them. And they will pass through this world the way the arrow passes through the bow. So again, again, these are people that were obviously problematic, but the Prophet let let them be. But he, he highlighted for the community the traits around these type of people. So that when these people come at any age, we know who they are. And this is the, the thing that the Prophet ﷺ is, has, was sent to teach us, was sent to refine us, 
was sent to enlighten us. Not sent to curse people and not sent to kill people. And he wanted good for everybody. But there were some people that refused. You know, some people like these people refused. And they have their own uh, psychology, their own baggage, their own issues that caused them to act this way or that way. But he let them be. But he highlighted the characteristics of those people for us. So that we don't fall into them and that we can identify them when they come. So when we see people like that, we say, oh, you know, the Prophet ﷺ told us, you know, Sadaq al-Mustafa ﷺ. He was the, the one that gave us the true warning. We know about you. You know, you're not, you, you, you haven't brought anything new. That kind of idea. So, again, the idea of apostasy, and I think we spoke about that last time, disbelief and, and, the, and the like. But in this, uh, for the, our purposes now, the important thing is to note that there were people that have come, for example, a man came to the Prophet ﷺ and learned uh, Surah Al-Baqarah and learned Surah Al-Imran and then he left Islam. You know, when you read in the seerah. You know, Surah Al-Baqarah and Surah Al-Imran, you're talking about maybe four or five juz of the Qur'an. I mean, it takes time to learn those uh, chapters, to memorize them and to re- recite them and to worship with them. So this man like has really came in Islam. Like he came in and he did, and then after, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, he's like, this is not for me, and he left. And the Prophet ﷺ let him leave. فَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيُؤْمِنْ وَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيَكْفُرْ Whoever wills, let them believe, and whoever wills, don't let them believe. لَا إِكْرَاهِ فِي الدِّينَ There is no compulsion in religion. And I'll get to the compulsion as we conclude, inshaAllah. But faith has to be something that's born from within, that has to... Uh, come from conviction. If faith is coerced, it's not faith. It's hypocrisy. And our uh, teachings, our paradigm is that our religion is based on conviction. That we worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because we believe in Him. Because we love Him. Because we acknowledge His existence and His dominion over us. Not because somebody told me to do that. And we have our own, each of us have our own individual journeys to arrive at that, that certainty. And it's very important, particularly for, for our youngsters, that they understand that, that faith is an individual journey that they have to take. Just because I grew up this way is not enough. It has to be something that's born from, from within. So the Prophet ﷺ coexisted with the hypocrites, which I think is the most difficult, you know, that anyone, I think all of these things we can understand, but that for me is, you know, if you know somebody's trying to kill you and harm you, but you let them be, he coexisted with people that had accepted Islam but left Islam for whatever reason. Again, uh, faith is a matter that's between uh, a servant and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he coexisted with the Jewish uh, minority community that was inside Medina up until you know, the last moment of his, of his life. Now let's shift gears a little bit and speak about how the Prophet ﷺ dealt with those outside the state of Medina. All of this is inside Medina. Okay, inside the, I mean we say nation and state just so we understand, but inside the, the body politic of Medina. After uh, the battle of the ditch, al uh, Khandaq, in the year 6 of the Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ took his companions and they set out for Mecca to perform Umrah. And at this time, there was about 1,400 Muslims or in the journey of the Umrah, there were about 1,400 Muslims with the Prophet ﷺ. And when the Prophet 
peace be upon him, got to Al Hudaybiyah, the Quraysh stopped him. And they prevented him from uh, performing the Umrah. And again, it's not a Sira class, I don't want to get into the details. The long and short of it is that he signed a peace treaty with the Quraysh in Hudaybiyah that was very weird. Even when we read it now, even though we have hindsight, even when we read it, we're like, wow, if I was in his shoes, I would have never agreed to that. But he didn't continue to the Umrah, so he you know, slaughtered the animal and he took off his ihram, and the companions didn't want to do that. Uh, they, were, you know, they were like, I don't understand. Didn't, aren't you the prophet? He's like, yes. He's like, aren't you? Uh, didn't Allah promise us that we will go to Mecca? Uh, and he said, yes, but I never said it would be this year. So it was very hard on the companions that, that they were going to make Umrah and they were prevented. What happened in this treaty? One of the things that happened in the treaty of Hudaybiyah is that the Prophet ﷺ agreed that any Muslim, anybody from Quraysh, anybody from Mecca who was a Muslim who came and migrated to Medina would be sent back to Mecca. So there was this uh, immigration outward of Mecca for the Muslims. People were leaving Mecca. The Muslims were leaving Mecca to join, obviously, the Prophet ﷺ in Medina. Because they're, you know, basically these two cities are at war. And the Quraysh said, anybody that comes from us to you, you have to send them back. So the Prophet ﷺ agreed. And obviously the companions were going crazy. Like, what are you talking about? Like, aren't, how could you do that? And then, at the same time, the Prophet, peace be upon him, agreed that they would trade and agreed that there would be no collusion between the Quraysh and the other tribes, particularly the tribe of Khaybar in the north of Medina, there would be no collusion with them against the national security of Medina. And from the treaty was excluded women, so when the women came, and this has to do with certain types of revelation, we don't need to get into the details of that. But what happened as a result of this peace treaty is that the Muslims of Mecca increased in number, not decreased. So there was like this, and the Muslims of Mecca are Meccan, they're not foreigners. They're, they are from Meccan tribes and Meccan society and Meccan aristocracy, and they just happen to become Muslim. You know, it's like if Jeb Bush becomes Muslim, he's still Jeb Bush. I was just giving, a, I didn't mean anything by that. So the idea is these were not foreigners, these were people from Mecca. Generation after generation after generation. So, you know, they have families, they have children. So what happened as a result of this is that the Muslim population of Mecca increased, not decreased. And that destabilizes more the Quraysh's stronghold on Mecca. And that's something that the Prophet ﷺ foresaw. But, you know, none of us would have done that. We would have been like, oh, you know, no, no, there are people, you have to be safe and that kind of thing. The other thing is that that cut off the communication between Quraysh and Khaybar. And as I said, Khaybar was in the north and Quraysh was in the south, the way south. And there was like two theaters of tension and war that the Prophet ﷺ was, the wars of attrition that he was fighting. This left him free to deal with the problem of Khaybar. And the problem of Khaybar was a problem. And this was, you know, treason and sedition. And uh, there was, you know, obviously blood involved uh, in, in Khaybar. But this has nothing to do with the fact that the people of Khaybar were Jewish. This had to do with the fact that the people of Khaybar were responsible for bringing these Ahzab, these groups, against the Prophet and the Muslims in Medina. So we have to understand that there is no inherent tension that we have 
between Jews or Christians or, or anything like that. That these things have to be understood through the language of statecraft. And I use some of these languages when I talk so that people can understand you know, theater of war, national security, sedition. I use these words so we understand, you know, if this happened to us, you know, if, if, if like there was this group in Canada or something that wanted to invade Minnesota or, or something like that. That doesn't mean that we have some sort of inherent problem with Canadians. It just means that there's a problem with that group of people. It just happens that that group of people in this story has an, another identity. But there were other Jews and other tribes that we'll get into that the Prophet signed peace treaties with after these events. So there is no inherent tension between uh, Islam and, and Judaism and Christianity and, and, and the like. The issue comes with the rule of law and the violation of the rule of law. So when the Prophet went to go for Umrah, there were 1,400. Several years later, when the Prophet went to conquer Mecca, as a result of his stratagem with this peace treaty, when they went back, they were 10,000. So they only increased almost tenfold, or maybe ninefold, they increased, as well as the population, the Muslim population in Mecca. And when the Prophet in year 6 went to, con uh, to, to do Umrah, only Umrah, but when he came for the conquest of Mecca, he came to take Mecca, to control Mecca from the Quraysh. And you would assume after all of these years of persecution, of torture, uh, of economic embargo, uh, that the Prophet ﷺ now coming back, you know, 10,000 strong to conquer Mecca, you know, he would have squashed the enemy. And he would have, you know, you know taken care of business. Because we all have those lists in our minds. If, if I ever have an opportunity, you know, this person, this person, this person. And when he entered Mecca, uh, Sa'ad ibn Ubadah, he says, Today is the day of bloodshed. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, Kathaba Sa'ad. And Kathaba in Arabic means lie, but in the language of Quraysh it means to make a mistake. Uh, so you have to understand sometimes these languages. And he says, Kathabasad, al yawma yawm al marhama. Today is the day of mercy. Al yawma a'az Allahu fihi Quraysha. Today Allah has given honor to Quraysh. So the Prophet ﷺ took this um, you know, situation in which you know, all of the things before, you can always say to yourself, you know, well, he was weak, they were the underdog, you know, he had to be patient, he had no other option. But this situation, you can't say that. Because he had the numbers, he had the strength, he had the weapons, he had the army, he had public opinion, everything was in his favor. He could have done away with all of these people and no one would have said anything and history wouldn't have said anything. But he did not, he was not sent for this reason. He was not commissioned for this reason. And this is one of the things about Islam is we, we this idea of world dominance, we don't have this idea of world dominance. We, we live our life for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What Allah asks us to do, we do to the best of our ability. And when he came to Mecca, the idea wasn't to conquer Mecca. The idea wasn't to squash his enemies. The idea was to perform the Umrah and to perform the Hajj and to establish these rituals which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asked us. And that's the difference of the inner perspective. We read it as the conquest of Mecca. We read it as he's coming victorious. He's coming to reclaim the city. But he saw it as something different. He saw it as to purify 
the Kaaba to purify this, this false belief system and to establish peace, justice, and, and harmony. And that's why when he said, when he heard this, he said, no, today's not the day of bloodshed, today is the day of mercy. Because the bloodshed was from their side, not from his side. And now when he was in control, spiritually and uh, militarily and politically, he said, no, now is the day of mercy. And when he, when he met them, he said, what do you think I will do with you? And they said, you're a good person from a good family. And he said, go so you are free. General amnesty for everyone. Except one or two people who were the cause of death uh, and, and aggression, uh, uh, capital situations. Again, the exception, but there was general amnesty. Everyone was, was le- left to be. And this is really, um, you know, a victory of, of, every, of every level. And this, this is, you know, summarized beautifully in the chapter of Surah Al-Fatih, in the chapter of the opening. And it's an opening of uh, a political opening, a military opening, a spiritual opening. It's his, it's his perhaps greatest achievement, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that he came back to Mecca and he dealt with these people that for years had done all of these horrendous things to them. Uh, and he made peace with them. And the interesting thing about this uh, coming back to Mecca is that not everyone became Muslim. So some people just remained, and the Prophet let them be. And even the people that became Muslim, because they were so much uh, like staunch enemies for so long, he understood that, and he took that into consideration in how he dealt with them. So for example, one of the things... Um, that's interesting about the Kaaba, for example, is that the shape of the Kaaba is not really uh, a cube. That the Kaaba is more like a uh, rectangle. Because you know there's like that uh, Hajar Ismail part of the Kaaba. That's part of it. And um, the Prophet had wanted to, to rebuild the Kaaba to its original parameters as established by Abraham. But because the psyche of the Quraysh at the time was so used to that and so used to the idolatry that the Prophet ﷺ left the Kaaba the way it was. I mean, he purified it from the idols, but he left the Kaaba the way it was, which is the way we have it till today. But he had internally, personally, he had wanted to, you know, uh, demolish it and rebuild it according to the Abrahamic parameters completely. And this is again a, a genius, you know, that he that he took into consideration that this would be too much for the people that I had just conquered or we have just taken, it would be too much for them to comprehend. And he took that into consideration. Because we're people, right? We're not uh, robots. So when we read the stories, the seerah, sometimes we, we, we really assume that these are like robots, like some switch happens. But these are still people, you know, they were his enemies all these years. It's not just on this day, all of a sudden everyone's loving each other and kumbaya and stuff like that. It's not going to be like that. It's going to take a long time. So he took that into consideration. And as I said, not everyone became Muslim and he just let them be. So this idea that there was this you know, forced conversion or something like that also is not, is not, is not accurate. Now we shift uh, to the last sort of group. So now the Prophet ﷺ, you know, solidified his control in Medina. And we talked about how Medina is plural and, re- and, and you know, remained plural through the passing of the Prophet ﷺ. He took Mecca, which was the real, you know, he, he, he isolated the threat from the north with Khaybar and then he took Mecca. And after this, everything, it was like a floodgate of, 
of opening and of allegiance. And, and within very, very short order, the entire peninsula, all of the tribes from all of the peninsula, they came to visit him. You know, and most of them had entered into Islam, but some of them did not enter into Islam. And in this mode, which is really the last you know, year or two of the Prophet's life, وسلم, this is when he signs these treaties with all of these groups, and he receives all of these groups. And how does he coexist then with all of these people? Now that he is you know, basically in charge of a you know, massive peninsula, a massive landmass, what does that mean and what happens? So in the seerah, this is the, the wufud. These are the delegations that come. So obviously not, not entire regions come, but each tribe, each region, each kingdom, they'll send a delegation to the Prophet Wasallam. And most of them, they came to pledge their allegiance to him on Islam. But when we read these, and there's you know, many, like you know, 20s and 10s and 10s of them, too many to go, to go through, but when we read them, you know, they follow this pattern which they come to the Prophet ﷺ, and he asks them about their condition. You know, how are things with you? What's going on? You know, he tries to understand what's going on with them. And when they swear, swear their allegiance to him, and he accepts their allegiance, he never interferes in their inner workings. So he never you know, gives these directives, okay, you have to do this with the state, you have to do that. He accepted their allegiance, their spiritual allegiance, that they're Muslim, that they're going to fast, that they say the shahada, that they're going to pray, that they're going to pay the zakah. And he would sometimes send some of the companions to these different regions to teach them because that's, you, know, you, you need to learn Islam to, to practice it accurately. But he never interferes in their inner workings. He never, uh, we never find any evidence, for example, that he says you have to structure your government this way, or you have to run your town this way, or anything like that. And this is important in light of our uh, other commentaries that we've given about sort of the, the concept of the Islamic State, is that the Islamic State not ISIS, the Islamic State, as in like the concept of an, an Islamic State, is there is no singular uh, dictated way that the Islamic State is supposed to function. We have no manuals in our legal tradition about that. But we have general principles about what the Islamic State is supposed to establish. You know, law, order, uh, there has to be an army to protect the borders, Things that no two people would disagree with. As long as those things are established, and as long as the state or a, a, a region, a political region, identifies itself as Muslim, then that's an Islamic state. And that is why the, the fuqaha have allowed for a plurality of Islamic states uh, and, and political entities throughout history. So this idea that you know, there was always this Khalifa, like with a big white beard sitting on a throne somewhere, ruling all over the world, never really existed, uh, and, and never will exist. Uh, and the human condition is different. And if you read our history, our political history, it was all over the place. Um, so, and, and we take, and again, when we want to know what we're supposed to do, we go back to the Qur'an and we go back to the Sunnah and we understand what happened, how did the Prophet ﷺ do this? And here we are in this political example in which there is, could have been political hegemony over all of this area. He didn't you know, say you are no longer uh, the emir of this or the king of that. 
he accepted their Islam, their, their spiritual and religious affiliation, and he let them dictate and run their affairs the way they thought best. However, not all of these groups were uh, Muslim. So for example, in the, in the year 10 of the Hijrah, in the final year of his life, وسلم, he ex 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 accepted a, welcomed a group, a Christian group from Najran, from Yemen. And when the Christian group came, and we read in the Sirah, the Prophet, you know, there was no Best Western and, and you know, Motel 7 or whatever they're called. So the Prophet ﷺ put them up in the mosque. And the, we read in the, in the Sirah that the Christians of Yemen, they came wearing their gold and their silver and their crosses. And the, they came after Asr prayer. And the Prophet ﷺ welcomed them in the mosque. And after Asr prayer, it came time for the Christians to pray. So the Prophet ﷺ let the Christians pray in the mosque. And they stayed several days. And he signed a peace accord with the Christians of Najran. And he said that, you know, we are at peace with one another. And that we will not interfere in your religious affairs. We will not appoint your bishops. We will not appoint the, the person who takes care of the cross. You know, th this language is in there. And there is no mention whatsoever of this jizya or anything like that. But they came almost as equals. He put them in the mosque. They prayed in the mosque. He signed a, a treaty with them, and he sent them back, you know, Godspeed. He also made peace with the Jewish tribes of Fadak, Ayla, and Taymat. There were also a couple of tribes that did not, they were still polytheist, and he let them be, but again, in peace. So the Prophet ﷺ, this, this reading that we have, or this narrative that, you know, he conquered all of the peninsula and, you know, it all succumbed to his political power and stuff like that. I mean, that did happen, but in this way, in which everyone was sort of left to be who they are, but they acknowledged that he was Sayyidina Muhammad And there is no doubt that Islam was the dominant force of the peninsula. And, and since that day, until this day, that's been the case. Uh, and... This is an, one of the most interesting th parts of his life uh, and his, um, his prophetic life is how he accepted these groups and these tribes uh, and of the, from the different regions of the Arabian Peninsula. The Muslims of them and the Christian of them and the polytheists amongst them. And this tells us a lot and informs us a lot about you know, how a real Muslim political leader operates or how a real Muslim religious leader operates. Uh, and when we see what we're seeing today, we can understand that this is just a, you know, a, a, a cancerous, you know, aberrancy. It's just, as the, it, he never did any of this. And this is a good segue into sort of the last thing I wanted to say as we conclude uh, the discussion, which is sort of the Prophet Sallallahu attitude towards war and jihad. In this case, you know, jihad meaning armed conflict. Uh, as I said, the Prophet ﷺ dealt with people outwardly, with what he saw and what was manifested outwardly. And this is why one of our, you know, in our legal tradition, one of the rules of engagement, you know, if somebody claims that they're a believer or, or somebody, uh, you know, says the shahada or something like that, then y you automatically have to cease in that aggression. And... Uh, one of the verses that um, talk about this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, 
ولا تقولوا لمن ألقى إليكم السلام لست مؤمنا Do not say to those who come to you and say salam, peace, that you are not a believer. But one of the recension, one of the recitations of this of this verse, you know, the Quran has different recitations and it just changes in some of the vowels. One of the recitations of this verse is Do not say to that person who comes and says peace, not salamu alaikum like the peace, but peace meaning the opposite of war, you are not a believer. Meaning that we deal with people that want peace accordingly. And we people that want good for us, then we deal with that accordingly. And that's how the Prophet, that was his disposition. So these tribes, all of them, they wanted peace. They wanted uh, alliances. They wanted uh, sort of camaraderie, brotherhood. Whether they're Muslim or not Muslim, and the Prophet ﷺ inclined, because he inclined towards peace. He didn't incline towards war. And war for him was only a last measure and as a deterrent. And this is the Qur'anic paradigm of jihad or armed conflict, is that war is only a tool to bring about peace. But if war does not bring about peace, then war itself is not a tool to be used. And that's very important that we understand that, that this idea of armed conflict, and you know, there's all this, these theories about warfare and, and you know, just war and things like that, and we definitely have a, a concept of just war, there's, there's no doubt about that. But what's the point of war? The point of war is that it is a tool that's only used when all other tools have been exhausted, when all diplomacy has been exhausted, when all uh, uh, efforts to appease a situation or deal with a situation have been exhausted, when there is no other, there's no more words that can be said, there is only action. And in that case, war is only waged in the Qur'anic paradigm to bring about that peace that had been exhausted prior. And if war does not bring about peace, then war is our enemy then war is antithetical to what the Prophet ﷺ has brought us, is antithetical to what the Qur'an is teaching us. Because Allah Ta'ala created us to work with one another, all of us in, in society, created us from the earth and placed us to dwell in the earth and asked us to develop the earth. He created us nations and tribes so that we know one another. This is the purpose behind the plurality of humanity, which is why I wanted to discuss this whole topic in the first place. The Prophet ﷺ manifested this, how he dealt with other people, how he coexisted with other people, because he is a manifestation of that. So war is antithetical to that. If war brings about you know, bloodshed and destruction, and then that's it, and then we just decimate like, you know, what's happening in Syria, then that war is against everything that this religion has to stand for. But if war somehow, or a battle, or an armed conflict somehow brings about an end of tension, an end of peace, then it's legitimate. Only if it's done under a political, the auspices of a political banner. And this is the language of the Sharia, tahtaraya, meaning that it has to be an official declaration of war. So we can't just sort of vigilante group just get together and, you know, we're going to wage war. And that's like these people have done in, in Iraq and Syria. And no matter how many they are, how, no matter how many they become, it's still an illegitimate war. So the number of people doesn't make something legitimate. Unless there's an official declaration of war from one government against one, another government, one state against another state, then it's just bloodshed, it's just killing. And there's a difference between al-qatl wal-qital. There's a difference between killing 
people and, and indiscriminately killing people, death, and al-qital, which is conflict or armed conflict that brings about some kind of uh, Allah says about jihad, armed conflict, fight so that there is no more tribulation. And then the religion is established that it is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, meaning that there is freedom of religion, freedom of belief, not just our belief, but freedom of belief in general. So this is why we have to understand, going back to what I said in the beginning about compulsion, where Allah ta'ala says in the Quran, لا إكراه في الدين that war cannot be used as a tool to compel people to believe in Islam. La ikraha fiddin is a universal verse, is a universal principle. There is no compulsion in religion. You cannot compel anyone, and there's never been any battle in our history that was ever waged so people can become Muslim, force people to become Muslim. This is, because this generates, as I said, hypocrisy, not true faith. So all of the troubling hadith that people say and the troubling interpretations, we have to take all of that vis-a-vis the reality of what the Prophet ﷺ did. All of the things that we've been talking about, this is all how he actually lived his life. Did he take this verse or this hadith, well he's the one that said it in the first place, and go around indiscriminately killing people? No, he didn't do that. So therefore that hadith that somehow seems strange must mean something else. Like the hadith that everyone, that these uh, people quote a lot, Umirtu an uqatil an nas. I was uh, uh, ordered to kill people or to fight people rather until they say, La ilaha illallah. Umirtu in Arabic, I have been, means that the hadith is something that's khas for the Prophet, not general for the community. He didn't say, Umirtum. Well, he said, Umirtu. Ana umirtu. I have been ordered to. So already when we begin the hadith's first word, we're talking about something that's khas, something that's particular to the Prophet ﷺ, not for the entire community. But then we see all of these examples. Well, he didn't, uh, he, the, not only did he not fight the people of Najran, he let the Christians come in the mosque and pray. And he let polytheists come in the mosque as well. So he didn't kill them. So that hadith must mean something else. We say, ah, but. The people that fight us or the people that harm us, we are allowed to exact and fight against them as much as they have fought against us so that there is no tribulation. Oh, so when the Prophet ﷺ says, I've been ordered to fight the people, that means I've been ordered to fight the people that fight me. Not all of people, carte blanche. And this is why it's very dangerous when we take uh, texts and, and, and words out of context. That each hadith has to be balanced against the other hadith and other principles. Each verse has to be understood vis-a-vis the other verses, all under the principles that guide our religion, the maqasid that guide our legal system and our moral system. And if somebody has taken a hadith and come up with a conclusion that goes against that, then our understanding of the hadith is wrong, maybe there's a defect in the hadith, you know, so on and so forth. So the Prophet's attitude towards war was one that he detested war. And it wasn't until Allah Ta'ala through revelation told him to engage in armed conflict that he engaged in armed conflict. So his natural disposition was one of, of peace and serenity. He didn't want to fight with people until all other, for, all other options were exhausted. And 
this, what I'm saying, this, these concepts, this carries forward as Islam is codified in the madhahib and the different schools of thought. And, you know, maybe we can get into that at a later time when we talk about sort of the theory of jihad and armed conflict and, and, and the different scenarios that emerged. Um, but this is a good, a good place to end. Uh, I began the series with the conclusion of the series, so I don't want to do that again. Uh, but there are many lessons for us to learn uh, through these four models or through th- four phases of the Prophet's life, وسلم, how he coexisted with the other. And um, I just want to, in conclusion, remind us all that coexistence, two things, that coexistence is an intentionality in creation. That Allah Ta'ala has created us different. Different races, different faiths, different abilities, different mental acuities. And this is on purpose. It's not a mistake. Allah didn't make a mistake with that. And because of that, coexistence is a religious injunction. It is something that we have to do, that we've been ordered to do. Uh, and th- this uh, exposition, as time I know, maybe it seemed a little long-winded and stuff, but there's so much in the Prophet's life, وسلم, so many different modes in his life, and he's dealt with so many different types of people that we can find in all of this, either individually or we bring you know, the, some examples together, find a way that makes the most sense to our own predicament of how we live with other people, peacefully, constructively, uh, living up to the intentionality that Allah Ta'ala has created in the diversity of uh, humanity.